My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. Finally, I speak also to legal theory and the role legal theory in helps us better understand the nature of international law. We explore legal positivism and natural law, natural law born of divitoria. Now scratch that part. Natural law, um, natural law associated with divitoria and positivism associated with the piece of Westphalia. Next, we consider a little bit commodity form theory, a theory that emerged in later days following the advent of Karl Marx and has been particularly explored in great depth very recently by China Mieville, a scholar of international law of the early 21st century. All right, so this is our final session, our final introductory session on effectively the nature of international law. So we began it, we've had three so far. I'd like us to begin today with a brief recap and a brief recap that I hope is going to clarify what I suspect is possibly a point of confusion for some of you. Now what do I mean by point of confusion? I had mentioned to you the other day that international law began with the creation of the nation-state. And for that, we look to the end of the Thirty Year War between Catholics and Protestants. We also look then to the establishment of the Peace of Westphalia. Now that happened in the 17th century. But then the other day, I also spoke with you about Francisco de Vitoria, Catholic theologian, Catholic jurist, who was responding to a query from Christopher Columbus about what the Spaniards could do with the natives that inhabited Hispaniola. Hispaniola is what today is uh, effectively um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. That was Hispaniola. So this was the point then of landing of Columbus and the conquistadors. So the question was, what can we do with the Indians? And there was a debate around that and such. And I said to you, this was the beginning of Jus Gentium, the law of nations. Now that happened in the 16th century. So we're talking roughly three or four generations prior to the Peace of Westphalia. And in between that time, we also have Hugo Grotius writing about international law, writing about the freedom of the seas. Some of this is in your materials. A lot of it we haven't actually touched. So then what we end up having is roughly two points in time two points of origin, two points of origin for contemporary international law. Now recall what I said to you during the first week, that the international legal regime that we are working with today is principally the one that emanated from Europe. And as I said to you, what emanated from Europe at that particular point in time wasn't precisely international law as we've come to understand it, but was more a form of outer law, outer state law. And there were other international legal frameworks that predated the European one. But the European one, as a result of a history of colonialism, a history of Eurocentricity, of European dominance, has now come, taken on the identity of contemporary, modern, international law. 
not European outer state law, not imperial law, but rather international law. But I'm still pointing to two periods, two points of origin for international law. Now, how did we distinguish between the two? Well, let us consider this then through the lens of the nature of international law, which is what I concluded the last session with. I told you that when studying legal theory, you are studying the nature of international law. Why, during the 16th century, Vittoria saw fit to construct this framework known as Jus Gentium. And what I was pointing out that when it comes to legal theory, one of the key questions that you're asking is not what law, but why law. Law exists to mediate social relations. But there are other ways that we mediate social relations. Economics mediate social relations. Politics mediate social relations. Sexuality mediates social relations. Violence mediates social relations. So we are making a decision to utilize law as the means of mediating relations between peoples, first with the Vittoria, the nation state didn't exist. So we had peoples, we had empires, and we're choosing law as a means of mediating those relationships. Fast forward then to the Peace of Westphalia, and we're now using law to mediate relations between sovereign states. And the question then is why in those points of time, just as why today, we're going to look into that question as well, why at those particular points in time, a decision was made that we are going to intervene in international relations, not exactly national, international if we're thinking of Vittoria, why we're going to intervene in those relations through law. Now what is the answer that Vittoria provides? What does he say about why law is necessary to deal with the natives? Well, it's an interesting answer. He says that we have this European civilization. The Spanish have their approach towards social organization. The English have theirs. The Dutch have a different one, the Portuguese another. But all of this then comes to represent this type of European civilization. And then there are the natives of Hispaniola. Now, prior to Vittoria, they are subhuman. They are savages. We don't acknowledge them in any sense of the word human. We see them primarily as beasts. Because, as we said, they are non-Christians. Enter Vittoria, and no, they are in fact a people with a rational system of social organization. So that's the first point in shift. We're shifting away then from the idea of non-Europeans being nothing but savages towards non-Europeans possessing reason. And by non-Europeans, we mean non-Christians, possessing reason. So as this happens, it opens the door then to some type of interactions between different people or different peoples. So let us be clear here. Prior to this, we would just deal with the world as we saw fit. But because Vittoria enters the picture 
and looks at the other and says, the other possesses reason, then there is now, it compels me as the Spanish, as the European, as the civilized, to enter into some type of relations with the other. According to what? Not according to Christianity, according to Euskentium, this law of nations. Where did the law of nations emanate from? Some people who might be a little ungenerous will say from the mind of Vittoria. But then when we look into the mind of Vittoria, what did Vittoria say? Eusgentium emanates in nature. So then, when we ask that question, what is the nature of Eusgentium? We are actually looking at a system of universal morality that exists in nature that binds all of us. So be clear here, in terms of the theory underpinning Eusgentium, it is a natural law-based theory. This exists in nature, binds all of us, and as I pointed out to you the other day, that meant that you had the right to settle, the right to trade, the right to proselytize, or to convert. All of that was contained in the law of nature. It was universal, meaning all rational peoples are bound by it. And any resistance to any form of those rights amounts then to a violation of the rights and therefore an act of war. And again, focus. The source of this? Nature. It exists in nature. And when we refer to natural law, we are referring then to an external moral code. It is an external moral code that all of us are bound by. Culture, irrelevant. Religion, irrelevant. Personal preferences, irrelevant. All of us are bound by the precepts contained within this external moral code. Now those who would be a little more critical of the analysis will simply say that ultimately this universal moral code lacked one key element, universality in that it was constructed by a particular individual who themselves emanate from a particular point in time, a particular culture, a particular community, a particular mode of thinking. But what was being articulated here then, and this is what one of the important lessons to take away, what was being articulated was not merely a form of universality. Yes, international law, use gentium, is conveying to us a universal moral code, but it was also, by creating universality, creating points of differentiation. And so anyone who is law-abiding is moral, ethical, righteous even, because they are abiding by their obligations as they exist in nature. And anyone who does not who violates them, is now a lawbreaker, is now evil, is now uncivilized, and is now again a savage. So in that same point when we've created this universal system, this universal morality known as Eusgentium, this law of nations, we also created a means of distinguishing 
between, of differentiating between peoples, between civilized and uncivilized. So those who abide by Euskentium, which as we're clear, was a cultural construct, are civilized, and therefore anyone who abides by a different cultural construct, meaning anyone who holds different values, is a lawbreaker. So there is only one culture to rule them all. Now what is the obvious critique of that? It's the same critique that has always been made about natural law. Whose morality are you working with? So if I look at all the people in the room, all of you look very different, different in a variety of ways. And so I say to myself, there's a good chance that, that all of you are coming from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different linguistic, geographical, state, regional, continental, the list goes on and on, all the differences. And as we said before, all of those experiences then will have shaped your outlook on the world, will have shaped your values, your moral view. So which one are we going to rely upon as the basis for international law? How do we decide which morality is going to be standardized, universalized? Better yet, remember what we said, Vittoria said this exists in nature. So there isn't really a discussion to be had, we just have to look to nature. And that ends up being the outcome of a natural law-based approach, is that people forever will assume that their way of doing things is the natural way. And the other way is exotic, foreign, different. And with difference comes the ideas of inferiority. So there is a self-evident critique to Vittoria's position. But now let us move to the Peace of Westphalia, the Peace of Westphalia that created a new form of social organization built around the notion of a nation state. So we have these nation states, and these nation states themselves, each and every one of them is sovereign. They have sovereignty over their borders, their jurisdictions, or all the lands within their borders. That is what amounts to their jurisdiction. There was a question then, once we start talking about sovereign states, and if each one is sovereign within their borders, then how can you be bound as a sovereign state anything that would be supreme, superior to you? Sovereignty was supremacy. So the state itself is now supreme within its borders, which then negates the possibility of a natural system, a universal system that binds all. Because otherwise we're talking about some type of global sovereignty. And if we're talking about global sovereignty, then what does that lead us right back to? God. But there was this differentiation that had taken place with Vittoria. We were not referring to... Right, so apologies for the change in sound, the change in acoustics. Unfortunately, my dictaphone malfunctioned, and so I'm having to re-record the second half of this podcast. Now I'll go ahead and begin where I left off with the naturalist perspective. And what was pointed out with that perspective is that for international law, or at least according to De Vittoria, international law itself is built around uh, 
these natural rights. Natural rights that everyone is bound by. Now, what we have to bear in mind is that much of what Vittoria, the framework that Vittoria constructed, was constructed in his imagination. Yes, he was extrapolating some standards based upon the behavior of Europeans, European empires, and such. Nevertheless, the way he was describing this universality, this universality was aspirational. This universality was a form of utopianism. And so it wasn't really anything based upon uh, concrete functioning of international law. Rather, he himself was constructing the framework. Now, this is where we have the break, and there's a shift. And I often say there are two points of origin in terms of modern international law. One is conquest and the lectures delivered by Francisco de Vittoria. But another one, then, is the Thirty Years' War, Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics in Europe uh, that ended with the Peace of Westphalia, that ended with the Treaty of Westphalia. And with the Treaty of Westphalia, what was put forward was the idea that sovereign states, or that states, this is where the modern state system was constructed, states themselves are now sovereign within their jurisdiction, giving rise then to the idea of borders and such. And by constructing then these sovereign states, at that same moment, we also gave rise then to international law in that these sovereign nation states had to interact with one another. And as they interacted with one another, they were engaged in certain relations. And so a legal framework was needed to mediate those relations. So following the Treaty of Westphalia, with the establishment of the nation state, we also had the establishment of international law, but a different form of international law from what Vittoria was proposing. Recall that Vittoria was then trying, based upon the behavior of Europeans, but more so his ideas as to how the world should be regulated, aspirational, utopian, he derived a series of universal rights. Well, with the Treaty of Westphalia, there was no talk about universal rights. Rather, there was talk of sovereignty, and that nation states had sovereignty over the affairs taking place within their borders, and that no other nation state had the permission, had the authority to interfere. So the relations then between nation states were largely going to be transactional. And by this, I mean by consent. The nation states would then engage in relations with one another, consensual relations, consensual relations that occasionally they would codify then in a treaty or such, so a form of international law. This is then where we would say that the international legal system, the modern international legal system, at least, shifted from a naturalist approach to a positivist approach. And if we fast forward a little bit, so the Treaty of Westphalia would be uh, the 17th century, if we fast forward then to the writings of John Austin, and John Austin then quintessential positivist, and he referred then to the supreme lawmaking authority as the commander. And one of his favorite phrases was, law is the command of the uncommanded 
commander. Think of it in those terms. Effectively, what Austin was speaking to was the sovereignty of the nation state. The nation state then as possessing a type of supreme authority. It means then that laws themselves emanate directly from the nation state and emanate directly from the lawmaking authority. So applying this then to international law, we see then that there are no such thing as universal rights that bind all nation states in that the nation states themselves are the supreme authorities. So the only thing that can bind the nation state is the nation state. And for that reason, the international legal system that was developed by Vittoria then has evolved or has transformed or was you know, sort of reborn instead of a naturalist system as a positivist system. But being positivist, it suffers, a positivist system, it suffers from the same flaws that legal positivism as a theory suffers from. The key criticism of legal positivism is that it fails to explain which laws the sovereign should pass. So should a nation state adopt a human rights treaty? Should a nation state adopt a trade agreement with another nation state? Should it join some type of customs union? And so on. There is nothing within positivism that explains what, in fact, the nation state should do. Instead, legal positivism only provides us with a means of distinguishing between valid law, laws that have been adopted by the sovereign, and invalid laws, laws that have not been adopted by the sovereign. But it doesn't tell us anything about good or bad law, or phrased differently, which laws the sovereign should adopt. Now this points then to a flaw within both the naturalist approach towards international law and the positivist approach towards international law. In that both of them fetishize the law. Both of them are celebrating laws in a different way. Vittoria is celebrating this use gentium, law of nations, universal rights and responsibilities. While John Austin is celebrating the nation state the sovereign, the supreme lawmaking authority, but neither of them are explaining why then we are choosing to mediate relations via this universal system or where this universal system emanates from, just as Austin doesn't explain why the sovereign is sovereign. In both instances, they are fetishizing law, they are taking law for granted. And since they are taking law for granted, then we are, in both instances, merely required to comply. So if we put aside the naturalist and the positivist theories of international law, what we can then turn to would be what some refer to as a contextual perspective. A contextual perspective. And here is where the realists come in. And the realists make an appearance, some might say, in uh, roughly the 20th century or so. Legal realists. And what they point to is power. And so they describe power relations and national interests, and they say that both power and national interests are determinative in the nature of international law. 
They are determinative in that ultimately nation states will only comply or only assent to and then comply with treaties or international agreements that are in their interest. And if they happen to be a powerful nation state, then they will even go as far as to impose their interests upon others. And the realists point to a number of examples, and in fact, history is littered with examples. And you could even critique then either Vittoria or the Peace of Westphalia, the Treaty of Westphalia, and the type of world that ensued, one in which Europe ultimately became dominant. And as I'm fond of saying, European subjectivity was then presented as a type of universal objectivity. So international law possesses a Eurocentric character largely because the modern system was ultimately informed by European worldviews, European political configurations. So the realists are onto something. When they critique it and point then to power, when they point to national interests being determinative, and because these are all sovereign states, they only ultimately have to sign on to an international agreement if they so choose to. Now the trouble with the realist approach is that ultimately they are treating conflict or struggles over resources, they are treating power, they are treating exploitation as pathological conditions. This is part of human nature. It is just the way we are. And because it is just the way we are, then we can't help ourselves. These things could never be overcome. Ultimately, the world is a battle. Now, some are disenchanted with that representation as there are many instances where we see collaboration. And collaboration that isn't always in your personal or immediate interest. Collaboration can take place for a variety of reasons, and in fact, humans have long mediated their relations for a variety of reasons. And as I pointed out in an earlier podcast on the history of international law, if we think in terms of generations, then in fact, the nation state has only been around for 15 or 16 generations, when in fact, the hominid has been around for 250,000 generations. So it's hard then to agree with the statement that power struggles between nation states are pathological, are determinative, since the nation state has not in fact been around for that long. We can go even a little bit further and say that power struggles take different forms in different historical periods. And one of my favorite examples would be in walking into a lecture theater with a battle axe. Well, presumably some people would be rightly disturbed by this, and that this show of power would be frowned upon, likely by the students themselves, certainly by the institution, and there's a question whether I would even have my job the next day, walking in with a weapon of that sort. But the battle axe is symbolic of a form of power, referring here to violent power, hostile power. So it's a type of power that, in other points of human history, might have had great sway, but today,
do not. And so even power itself then shifts what we understand by power because power is historically contingent. So the realist would have to problematize power rather than just saying it's all about power. They would have to problematize what type of power do they mean? Is it political power? Is it uh, hereditary power? Economic power? It would brute force, example of the battle axe and such. And then ultimately what they would also need to comment on is how legal rules inform, how they influence, how they impact upon these power struggles. So the critique then is that power is in itself representative of both privileges and disadvantages and because power shifts, because privileges and disadvantages shift, it is too simplistic to simply say that there is a struggle over power. We require an approach that accounts then for the fluidity of power. And then this brings me to the final point for today's podcast on the theory then of international law. Another way to examine then international law or even law in general is treating it then as a process. Now we recognize law as process in the stage of lawmaking. And of course we would, but we look to lawmaking authorities, parliamentary bodies, for example, and we see that parliamentary bodies are made up then of different political parties. And those different political parties are struggling over authority, are struggling over the authority to make laws. And even if a party has a majority, there is no certainty that the law that the party heads want adopted is going to pass. Because there is, as we said, conflict within these bodies. So there is a subjectivity to lawmaking and ultimately choices are made for a variety of reasons. Different priorities are accounted for when it comes to lawmaking. Now notice then the subjectivity that is built into the phase of lawmaking, and yet when we shift over to the adoption of the law, then the law itself becomes sacrosanct. It is no longer treated as a site of struggle or a site of conflict or a site of tension. Rather, it is treated as a site of universality, a site of objectivity, a site in which we are required then now to merely comply with the law, as if compliance is itself then automatic because the law has been adopted. And so we shift then from the subjectivity of lawmaking to the objectivity of adjudication. But here's the rub is that a law is made up of a series of words, of phrases, of sentences, and such. And we know that words have different meanings, and those different meanings are informed then by the person who's interpreting the words, their understanding of the word. They're informed by the context in which the word is being deployed. And they're informed then also by the historical period when the word emerged. So try to imagine a generation ago using the word internet or electronic transaction. That wouldn't have made any sense. We did have the word transaction, but electronic transaction, certainly not. 
So language itself is fluid. Language is in flux. What this means then is that law, and we say law as process, law itself is infused with a type of politics of definition. Politics of definition. We are spending time, we are debating, we are arguing over how we define these words contained within laws. We are spending time interpreting then the meaning of these words. Now the point that is being made by these critical scholars who are examining the politics of definition is that interpreting the law, defining these words, is not just what we do to understand the law. This in itself is part of the process that is law. Interpreting law is itself a process that is part of the lawmaking exercise. And so here then what we are shifting away from is this idea that law is fixed and more the idea that law is fluid. And if law is fluid, then it's not so much about studying the law itself, but rather the spheres of influence over the law. And that leads us then to what Marty Koskinemi, lawyer, international legal scholar, has referred to as the indeterminacy of international law. And he writes about this in a very interesting article on the politics of international law. There are actually two versions, the politics of international law and the politics of international law 20 years later, the follow-up piece. So he points to the indeterminacy of law and says, well, in fact, the law is indeterminate. Some people have observed this before, and what they've said is that you can have competing legal arguments. So the same facts, the same laws, but competing legal arguments, both of which lead then ultimately to persuasive outcomes. Hence why we can look at, say, the highest uh, judicial body within a country, so a Supreme Court, and see that decisions will often be 5 to 4, or 7 to 2, or 6 to 3. This doesn't simply mean that the minority's decision was wrong, that they misinterpreted the law. No, ultimately, it's that they were convinced by another argument. And so even though they were deploying the same facts, even though they were relying on the same laws, ultimately, as we said, the politics of definition influences then the outcome. So we speak of the indeterminacy of law, we speak of the contingency of law, the contingency of law, meaning there is no interpretation that is certain. We can predict outcomes, but only to the extent that future judges are going to comply with previous decisions, but even then that compliance is contingent upon them adopting or then receiving a similar argument and then adopting a similar interpretation. So this is where often law students will confuse actuality, so what actually takes place, with necessity, what must take place. The interpretation that is provided by a judicial body is not a necessity, it is merely an actuality. And so the critique then that is leveled against 
positivism or natural law or even realists who pursue power relations within their interpretation of law is that they take for granted that the sovereign state or these universal rights or these power dynamics are necessary rather than historically contingent. And so that then ultimately creates a type of artificiality in our understanding of law in that it presumes that the status quo is necessary rather than merely a creation of previous events. So this brings me to my conclusion then. Now I would normally say a few words about commodity form theory and I would point you to the works of uh, Pashukanis and China Mieville, but that's a little complex and I think I'll save that for a separate podcast. So I'll conclude then with the importance of studying theory of law. Now, the importance of studying theory is the importance of studying the nature of law. And it's the, goals. the aim here is to understand why we choose to intervene in certain social relations with law. And the second part, whether our intervention was ultimately effective. We study the why and we study the effectiveness because we don't want to simply study the law itself. The law as it exists today is little more than the preferences, the partialities, the prejudices of the previous generation. The previous generation decided that they wanted to regulate their society in a particular way and that is what has been adopted. That is what has been privileged. So we don't just study the law, meaning the rules, rather we study the theories that seek to explain why we chose to adopt these particular rules. What was the aim that was being pursued? What were the circumstances, the context within which it happened? So it's not what law, but why law. Not what, but why. This then takes us away from the prejudices, the preferences of the previous generation towards a deeper understanding of law itself as a vehicle via which we mediate relations. Does the world have to be regulated by the international legal system as it exists today? Well, it is regulated in this way, but by studying legal theory, we come to understand why it is regulated in this way. And once we understand the why, then it's possible for us to consider alternatives as now we can relate the objectives, the aspirations, the context within which we find ourselves with then the type of society that we are trying to create to see whether the laws that we have are supporting our ambitions whether they are adequate for the context within which we find ourselves. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.